Hello, my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're going to be talking about Ingrid Bergman. Some real important cinema. We just recorded a Patreon episode about the Power Rangers <laughs> movie, so really shifting gears here, I gotta tell you. <laughs> now, Ingrid Bergman is an actress that I knew of more as a kind of mythical figure than I did someone whose work that I explored. Mm -hmm. Like, you know she's in Casablanca, you know she's in a movie called Gaslight, and you know she went uh, to Italy to work on neorealist films with Roberto Rossellini. And you knew there was a scandal there, Exactly, too. yeah. I'd probably seen, I don't know, five or six of her movies over the years, just, just being somebody who's interested in movies, you mm -hmm. inevitably run into her, Notorious, Casablanca, Autumn Sonata, maybe a few others. So the question could be, what makes Ingrid Bergman Ingrid Bergman like what makes her the icon that is just burned into most people's memories well I was trying to figure it out this week I watched the documentary Ingrid Bergman in her own words the recent one you, you did which I recommended to Will and then he watched and he went eh it's not very good I'm like whoop dodge that bullet <laughs> <laughs> well I don't know I was just disappointed because it was mostly like home video footage mm -hmm. and uh or home movie footage and excerpts from her letters and her diaries which is you know fine if you're really interested in her but not a lot of analysis there so i was kind of hoping that might that might guide me to figuring out what what her technique was and you're what like all right was. well that didn't give me much wikipedia click <laughs> <laughs> but but i but why don't we just start with her face yes it's a great face mm -hmm. it's uh it's sort of a round face she's got a big lower lip a small upper lip, a very trembling lip, I would say. And she's famous that when she started her career that she didn't wear makeup when she acted. Well, like there's something about her face that I think really lends itself to the kind of uh, ethereal, um, gauzy look of black and white cinema. Mm. In a movie like Casablanca, like it, it's almost as if like her face fades into the frame. I don't know. I'm getting like pseudo poetic here. <laughs> Uh, and But also there's a quality to her face. I mean, it would be wrong to call it like a, a Mona Lisa look because she's very expressive. What about a Joan of Arc look, which she played three times? There, there's something very uh, ambiguous about yeah. her face. Uh, in, in a movie like Casablanca, you know, think of the scene where she asks uh, Sam to play the piano or where Rick is doing the speech to her at the end or when she's about to betray Rick in Paris. Uh, th there are so many kind of emotions that come across her face and she doesn't telegraph anything. Uh, it, like, her face looks kind of like a, a storm, almost. I think it's also a mixture that she speaks very good English, but it has that accent. So it gives it a dimension of vulnerability, mm -hmm. but there's also strength there, which she shows over and over again in all the movies that she makes. Yeah, and because the, the accent is there to sort of complicate her line delivery, uh, I guess it makes it ambiguous sometimes what the emotions are. Mm, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we decided to watch Gaslight and Journey to Italy for this podcast. And I think you and I also explored a little bit elsewhere, yeah, exactly. too. Yeah. Gaslight is a film that came about in Ingrid Bergman's Hollywood career. So she's from Sweden. Her parents died when she was very young, and she got into acting Acting very young as well. And she was a star in Sweden first. Yeah. She started a movie called Intermezzo that caught the attention of David O. Selznick, the Hollywood super producer. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to buy the remake rights for that film and also bring Ingrid Bergman to Hollywood to star in it. And she'd actually just given birth to a child, so he waited for her to recover. And she was uncomfortable with her ability to speak English. Mm. A few years passed before she was able to make that film. She made a couple more movies in Sweden. And then when Intermezzo came out, it was a hit. 
Mm-hmm. Like her persona was almost solidified right there. People loved her. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing is that David O. Selznick actually loaned her out more than she worked for him. Mm-hmm. In the book Memo from David O. Selznick, he talks about Ingrid Bergman a lot. Should we change her name? He was very involved as well in the choices that she made, mm-hmm. recommending her for the role in For Whom the Bell Tolls and stuff like that. And the movie Gaslight, which was directed by George Cukor, which actually earned her her Best Actress Award. The first of three. And yeah, five. and seven nominations. Yeah, how about that? So I had never seen Gaslight before. And uh, watching it, I can understand why. Um, <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I liked it well enough. I mean, it's like light Hitchcock, right? That's yeah, two hours long. You're, well, it made me think of like Rebecca or something. Yeah, like or and I, or, or man, I wish I was watching Rebecca. <laughs> yeah, or just kind of like that whole genre at the time of kind of like. Uh, gothic big spooky house woman being oppressed movies yeah you know it was weird to watch too because since the title has lately gone into the lexicon you know gaslighting it it gives away the twist do you think it was posed (laughs) as a twist when it was released in theaters i don't i don't know but what i do know from watching it is that the movie has almost this kind of like audition like structure where Mm. for the first half hour maybe you've got the love story between charles boyer and ingrid bergman and like you assume it's a love story and then you know the the, the cracks start in the facade and uh suddenly uh orson wells b-lister joseph cotton shows up to solve some mysteries uh so you know i uh enjoy the movie well enough that that sounds pretty weak doesn't it but yep. but the structure of the movie is very effective i mean you you kind of i guess feel yourself going insane with ingrid bergman as it goes along the way charles boyer does this plot to drive her gradually insane by you know there's the scene early in the movie where she's where he says where did that picture go oh you must have taken it and she can't remember it and then gradually gets more and more and more yeah where'd my brooch go oh you must have lost it you keep can't you keep forgetting things and i assume if i didn't know the ending i might have actually been a little bit like is she going crazy is something going on yeah and i do like the atmosphere of like this big gothic house that they're living Mm in and these rain swept cobblestone streets shrouded in fog that they walk up and down that that's a lot of fun, but maybe because like you know what the twist is, so you're just waiting it for it to play out. Yeah. I, I also think though it's effective that the movie spends so much time in that first half hour establishing the love story between Charles Boyer and Ingrid Bergman. It makes the dissolution of it, I guess, more powerful. It ends a little too neatly, I think. And it does end in a way where Joseph Cotton comes in and saves the day, yeah. as opposed to her taking her own initiative to figure out that this is all a big sham. But you can tell that there's one scene that earned her that Best Actress uh, Award, Mm -hmm. which is when she finally confronts her husband and uh, almost makes some um, moves that maybe she'll kill him in this situation. Yeah, this movie is kind of where she's at her most um, pure, I guess. She has this quality to her as an actress, this vulnerability, this kind of like a quaking, shaking Mm -hmm. quality. It makes me think a little bit of Judy Garland, actually. Um, Yeah. It's not like, it's not that kind of like fast talking, a highly stylized Hollywood acting of like a Catherine Hepburn or a Betty Davis. Well, Ingrid Bergman was loved by everybody that she worked with, but they all noted that she was very shy. She kept to Mm. herself and she wasn't like a big personality on set, which makes sense when you watch the movies and she plays innocent and kind of lost but at the same time she has the strength to rise up well i was surprised that somebody who you know as i said she's got a she's got a great pure looking face somebody who uh, i guess comes across initially as so kind of like pure and beautiful and uh vulnerable is often cast in such um 
morally ambiguous roles you know a movie like notorious where she's constantly kind of ping-ponging back and forth between good and evil Mm -hmm. you know like the way hitchcock dresses her in those checkered uh, outfits as if to as if to visually show you that she is uh, morally conflicted or in casablanca where uh you know she feels herself torn between the upstanding paul on reed character and the kind of scuzzy uh, humphrey bogart character even something like spellbound where she has to believe gregory peck who may be a murderer and go on the run with him to prove that, no, it's just uh, his mind that is making up all these tricks. He did not murder mm-hmm. anyone. So she she's always playing these kind of like, not morally ambivalent, but people that are dealing with emotional stress. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not quite sure what lends her to this. I guess it's... You know, I th- you know what? They're probably like, it's just the accent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess. But I mean, again, there's something about her face that's able to uh, convey, you know, this kind of like emotional and moral um, um, storm that's brewing inside. When she was cast in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, she actually requested to play the bad girl role instead mm. of the like innocent uh, flower one. Oh, uh, interesting. But then her Hollywood career came to an end a sudden crashing halt when she got pregnant from an affair that she was having with director roberto rossellini Mm, one of the leading lights of the uh italian neorealism so she actually left hollywood and i heard much to hitchcock's chagrin oh really yeah he's probably spying on her from the (laughs) trailer like a people or something like that and she went to italy and she made five films with her husband Roberto Rossellini. And in fact, the the affair started on the first one, uh, Stromboli, because she actually had written him a fan letter after seeing uh, Germany Year Zero, Mm -hmm. saying that, you know, if you ever want to work with uh, a Swedish actress who can speak passable English and no Italian, uh, (laughs) get in touch. I watched Stromboli and I watched, as you did, Journey to Italy, also known as Voyage to Italy. Uh, It was interesting. One of the few insights that the Ingrid Bergman documentary gave me was that initially it was a huge shock working with Rossellini because of the kind of free and loose filming style that he had. You know, he would often say, oh, just improvise some dialogue. Yeah, he wasn't a director that was known for guiding his actors. He liked stuff to happen on screen. Yeah, and she was coming out of that very rigid studio system. Like Hitchcock. Yeah. It doesn't get any more rigid than that. Yeah. Uh, Let's talk about Journey to Italy, because this is one that uh, I think, like all the movies that she made with her husband, was a flop at the time and has only recently really been uh, reappraised as a masterpiece. Uh, it's a an influence on Antonioni. Yes. Uh, which perhaps is why I didn't connect to it quite as well as I wanted to. I think the journey to Italy had a few stumbling blocks right from the get-go for me, which was, I've heard it praised as nothing but a masterpiece. Huh. I think it was recently restored and kind of reevaluated yeah. recently. Criterion did a uh, like three-movie box set of the Rossellini-Bergman work. It's a good movie, by the way. I don't want to like it the impression that I'm knocking it. I'm just saying that it's one that... It just didn't do much for me. Well, it's one that I had to make myself watch. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Force yourself through it. And, you know, the Antonioni comparison, I think, is perhaps apt because, uh, you know, I like some of Antonioni's films, but that uh, the ennui of the idle rich is not my yeah, favorite topic. <laughs> that's um, the rich people wall, as I like to call it, where it's these people that have everything, but their life doesn't have the happiness that it should. And they stand around. <laughs> yeah. And sad. specifically in Journey to Italy, uh, Ingrid Bergman goes in, visits the sites, and we follow along with her as she goes to Pompeii, an art museum. 
she watches the poor as they uh, bicycle around the streets. She wa- she looks Now, that like- was a big issue that I had, which is really? there's multiple scenes of Ingrid Bergman sitting in a process car and looking out the window, and it cuts to, like, real-life footage of them filming, um, like, the poor Italian street people. Did you have a problem with the ethics of that? The ethics and kind of the presentation, where they there was a clear dichotomy between this fake Hollywood-esque shot of Ingrid Bergman and this kind of like looking out on the street. It reminded me of film students making uh, uh, documentaries about the homeless and they like film it from across the street and like zoom in. Okay, I I hear you. Um, I will say though that one of the things I liked about the movie was in this presentation of post-war Italy. We see Ingrid Bergman visiting ruins of fallen civilizations Mm -hmm. and then she comes out of those ruins into this kind of ravaged Italy where mm-hmm. the rich are still rich but the poor are poorer than they've ever been and there's just ruins everywhere. I mean, I'm sure there's an academic essay out there <laughs> highlighting the fact that like that was an on-purpose effect that like this artificiality with this realism between yeah. both of them but it did, didn't create the kind of emotional reaction I was hoping that it did would. Did you hate these characters? I hated I hated George Saunders. As I, you husband. know what? I didn't hate Ingrid Bergman. I could see her plight and they she says they've been trapped in this marriage for years and it's nothing and I wish she could escape yeah but especially the way that the movie ends i was like oh no everyone says that the ending is so powerful that i don't, I don't know. know what they're talking about i thought about. it was a bit of a cop-out frankly yes. that they get back together i mean i like i like the way the scene is laid out with her being you know carried away by this crowd but of... once again that puts her in the position of uh unmoving object like she cannot <laughs> change herself it's like what so now we're applying like applying like a modern day feminist reading. To... Yeah, sure. Okay. I mean, I read some articles that said like at the end when Rossellini's dolly creates a shadow on the couple, mm-hmm. it's really bringing together the world of film <laughs> and reality of the relationship between Bergman and Rossellini. I'm like, oh, come on. Well, I, I don't know about that. I did think it was interesting to watch her touring these, you know, ancient ruins and kind of thinking, God, look at these look at all this history, look at all these uh, fallen civilizations and look how like relatively meaningless the plight of this couple is in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if I'm supposed to feel that way or if that's if that's a knock on the film. Well, I watched Rossellini and Bergman's previous effort, Europa 51, and I really like that one. Okay. Which stars Bergman as a kind of rich socialite who in the first few minutes is ignoring her 12-year-old son and then he commits suicide. <laughs> so she is thrown into disarray and a reaction to that is to help the poor and to do everything she can to help the people that have been ravaged by the war around her. And her family reacts to that by th- saying she's insane and putting her in an insane asylum. Interesting. I should I should see that one. I saw Stromboli, which is a uh, snobs against the slob story of, uh, <laughs> of uh, uh, Ingrid Bergman uh, moving with her new husband uh, to this island where he's from, uh, this rather poor island full of uh, a humble peasant village, a uh, fishing village where she thinks I, I can't live on this fucking island for, for, it sucks. this fucking sucks and the priest is there and saying ah don't you realize that the, the, this these are the salt of the earth people this is you've got to you've got to learn to love this island you've got to learn to understand the sacrifice and it ends with seeking strength from God basically on the on the hillside and <laughs> two thumbs up <laughs> and the thing about I liked about Europa 51 is yeah. that she is interacting with like these probably non-actors and stuff like that. Something that never really happened in Journey to Italy. Well, what I like about Journey to Italy is that Rosalind doesn't handhold you through this. Mm-mm. He trusts you to draw the connection between these landscapes, all this history, and 
this couple who have found themselves in stasis, really this whole social class that's kind of, I don't know what a word would be, exhausted or artificial. Rossellini liked to say that he like holds people up to people. He's always going to give you those dramatic structures that you expect and that you're supposed to, just by the sheer nature of you experiencing this, have an emotional reaction to it. Hmm. So these movies were not a big success at the time. In fact, Rossellini was criticized in uh, neorealist Italian circles because they regard him they regarded him as betraying the genre because he used a movie star. But that's what he wanted, right? Is that it's <laughs> that's, a weird, that's what they all want, isn't it, it? It's a weird thing that like Bergman obviously wanted to feel more real after being in this artificial world. Uh-huh. And Rossellini wanted a star to kind of elevate his material and give them an extra dimension. But at the same time, the public turned against Ingrid Bergman when it was revealed that she was having an affair. Yeah, there's a very uh, selective moral outrage Mm -hmm. that uh, the American public had. The Ingrid Bergman documentary has footage from Ed Sullivan's show where uh, it's basically him saying to the camera, now we're thinking of having Ingrid Bergman on. Uh, I know she's a controversial figure. Maybe enough time has passed, maybe not, but uh, feel free to write in. Do you want her on? Do you not want her on? The decision is yours. And I'm watch. I don't know if she ended up going on, but... Nope, she did not. Well, of course not, because like, if somebody's actually going to write in with, with their opinion about... And they're not going to be like, I love her, she should be on. Or they're not... Or most people just fucking don't care so so the only people who would write in are the ones who really care which are the ones who are angry although she then uh had a bit of a comeback because she won an oscar in the late 50s for anastasia Mm -hmm. yep a big color uh epic spectacular Mm -hmm. and she continued to work in hollywood fairly infrequently after that and on the stage Mm -hmm. much more regularly you know the plight of any actress who's over 40 but i did check out a movie that blew me away that she starred in and that was Ingmar Bergman's Autumn Sonata. Great movie. Wow. How about her face in that? Oh, beautiful. I mean, well, you know, Bergman is the poet of people's faces. And hers is, you know, at this point, old and lined, but still very beautiful. And this was her last feature film role. Didn't she play Gold in My Ear? She did, in a TV movie. Okay. This movie is all about Liv Ullman and Ingrid Bergman spitting emotion at each other for what feels like... 90 straight minutes. After basically years of their, um, you know, simmering uh, unhappiness with each other. Every (laughs) emotional trigger is in this movie. Abortion, children dying, (laughs) children forgotten, children that are sick. It's all there. (laughs) And it was so potent. And this is an Igmar Bergman film that moves like a bullet through those 90 minutes. Just loved it. Loved it. Yeah, it's a great film. I should see it again. And you can tell that Woody Allen just kind of ripped that off for that movie he made, September, which also has the same setting, which it takes place all in, like, one house. Mm-hmm. Visually beautiful, too. Oh, it? yeah. Um, the movie so. is all in these, like, oranges that just make me think straight up of the 70s and yeah. what they look like. But she won her final Oscar for... Murder on the Orient Express, ah. a film that she had a tiny role in. I actually watched her uh, Oscar acceptance speech for that movie, and it's funny because she spends the whole speech praising one of the other nominees. Yeah, because she's like, why did I get nominated? <laughs> the director, Sidney Lumet, actually wanted to give her a bigger role. She's like, no, I don't want to do it. Just give me a tiny role. Yeah. And she still fucking wins an Oscar well, for obviously it. a sentimental choice. Which is weird because yeah. she's already ri- won two. Yeah. Like, do you need to toss her any more bones? I don't know. Is Meryl Streep going to win whatever, like, near her final role? will be probably why not like into the woods too or something like that meryl streep is just one of the worst actresses around these days (laughs) 
These days, you say. These days. Yeah, okay. So, Ingrid Bergman. Go watch Casablanca and Autumn Sonata. Great movies. I recommend Journey to Italy. Why not? I no, re- go see Europa 51. I recommend Stromboli, the Caddyshack of its day. <laughs> so, really, you know, pit all the Italian uh, Bergman uh, neorealist films against each other, and only <laughs> one victor can come out. Uh, so, do we have any letters? We do have some letters this week. Hell yeah, important Cinema Club Nation. So, this letter is from Alex Griffith, and he goes... Dear Important Cinema Club, I wrote for Will at the Varsity when he was a film editor there. I remember, yes. Hello. Where I got assigned Asian indie movies, Roger Corman docs, stuff that broadened my taste as a moviegoer. Oh, wow. I'm glad to hear that. Now this podcast is doing the same thing, exposing me to deep cuts like modern day Steven Seagal and Edgar G. Ulmer. (laughs) Those are the only two filmmakers. So do I you care have about. like children of film that you like spawned while you were at university? I feel like the end of Mr. Holland's opus. <laughs> Without your episode on Detour of the Black Cat, I don't think I would have noticed the touches of originality in this or that shot if it hadn't been for your advocacy to take him seriously as an artist. Oh my god, thank you. Yeah, Edgar G. Elmer, great guy. Yeah. We weren't first on that. uh, Not as good as Isaac Florenti, as I've already said. (laughs) What about a De Palma episode? I think he is also someone who is unfairly dismissed as schlocky, held in lower esteem than his 70s peers, Scorsese and Coppola. Best, Alex. I think that Brian De Palma is actually held in pretty high esteem these days. I actually think he's been getting a little overrated. Oh, really? Well, I don't know. I I think we'll do a De Palma episode at some point. And you said that you're not a big fan of him in the top 10 episode where you said you like the De Palma doc, not a big fan of his movies. I like some of his movies. I think, you know, everyone likes some of his movies. Uh, It's it's more the, there are certain movies that I think separate the men from the boys. You know, if you love Femme Fatale, then you love Brian De Palma, and I don't. Yeah, but De Palma is someone that the people who love him tap into this, like, pure cinema that he's giving out, and that's what people really respond to. I don't know, it feels... I feel tacky? That, well, yeah, not, not tacky so much, because he is a very great stylist, mm-hmm. but uh, there's something that seems a little empty there to me, to, ah. be, to be honest. But I, I love I, Brian De Palma. I don't know. A lot of people love him. I'm willing to accept that I might be wrong about this. Yeah, we're going to do an episode head-to-head. We should get, like, a Brian De Palma expert. Or, Brian, if you're listening, come on to the episode. <laughs> yeah. So next week... We're going for your clicks. <laughs> We're riding that side, guys. We're going to be talking about Mr. David Lynch. Hell yeah. It's uh, Twin Peaks season, so uh, let's let's get on this. What movies are we going to watch? We're going to be watching, much to Will Chagrin, Dune. <laughs> As Will said when I brought it up, he went, but we know it's bad. <laughs> Why do we have to watch it? I think it'll be interesting to, because me and Will, like, we're cinema geeks, right? We have to have bought into that David Lynch cult when we were, like, growing it's up. It's pretty crazy we're only getting to him now. Yeah. And that we've seen most of his films, so I think it would be interesting to watch Dune trying to apply everything we know and try to find the nuggets of his style in there. Dune is one of those movies that, you know, every aspiring Lynch fan gets to and thinks, well, surely there's something here. It can't be all bad. And then they always return and say, nope, it is all bad. It is a movie that I have fallen asleep watching almost a dozen times trying to get through it. One of the only movies I saw as a kid that I didn't like. (laughs) And then, to go easier on us, we're going to watch Inland Empire. That I'm looking forward to. (laughs) Three hours long. I like Inland Empire. And um, Will saw it on its first day in the cinema. I did. I saw it when it opened at the Royal Theater. I think I was 17 or 18 years old. Uh, Not a fan at the time. (laughs) 
But uh, I've come around to it on a subsequent viewing. And I'm really looking forward to talking about that movie as well. So you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. We didn't receive anybody recommending other film books after the last episode. Well, that's weird. Which is really surprising. That's okay. Um, I guess we were so comprehensive, we did not miss anything. <laughs> Literally every film book ever written was covered. Don't forget that if you're like, man, I haven't gotten enough of these guys, we record another episode on our Patreon for five bucks a month. You get four of them. This week, as we said, it's about the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers movie. The 1995 Ivan Ooze original. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, my name's Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. take a peek behind the important cinema club podcast this week and say that personally this was a tough week for me to watch these movies because i don't know that much about ingrid bergman so i was like i'm gonna check out a lot of her films but then when you're presented with like neorealist pictures i'm like oh man this would be easy to watch like in a cinema where you can give your full attention to it and really be immersed but when you're sitting at home like watching it on TV, there's a million distractions. Do you find that happens to you a lot that you're like distracted by stuff when you're trying to watch like movies that really need your full attention? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm watching a movie and then I think, well, geez, what if I got a Twitter notification? <laughs> yeah. That'll give me that quick hit that I'm craving. That's why I'm excited. The fact that Tiff is playing all of these um, Ozu, Dreyer, Bresson movies this month. Because yeah, that's right. Because they're doing it in honor of um, the Paul Schrader book. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, I'm seeing him at Tiff. On oh, Monday. you're seeing him tomorrow? Yeah, I'm very excited. I- I read that it's actually put on by like whatever. You know, I love Schrader. <laughs> you oh, wait. You love Schrader? I don't want to get into. How this. can you not love Schrader? I know. I love Schrader. I love Schrader like without loving everything that he's done. Mm-hmm. I think that he's a fascinating figure in cinema. Yeah, as kind of being on the outskirts and doing all this weird stuff, whether it be cat people or. Um, like hardcore. Oh yeah, I love that he's you know always trying to keep himself relevant, even though I don't love all of the movies he's done lately. But for people that don't know, Paul Schrader, when he did write a book on transcendental cinema, like slow cinema, this was one of his before he was a writer and filmmaker or a screenwriter and filmmaker. He was a film critic, kind of one of the uh, Pauline Kael Paulats, and he was a big fan of what he called slow cinema. And the new essay he wrote is actually the death of slow cinema, mm-hmm. which I can imagine is only. The the result of like him seeing all these youngsters being distracted by a million things especially me and you where we can watch whatever we want like at any time so it's really easy just to like tap into that vein where you're like just give me the kung fu films yeah 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 and like when i was you know, getting ready to watch films like Journey to Italy or uh, Europa 51, or even just like a two and a half hour Ingrid Bergman Hollywood blockbuster. I was like, ah, you know what would be nice right now? One of those Luc Besson produced early 2000 uh, Hong Kong inspired action films. When I saw on Letterboxd that you watched um, Kiss of the Dragon, I was like, fuck, I want to watch that. Oh, gotta watch uh, Stromboli. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but man, Kiss of the Dragon holds up. I think this is a weird period in cinema that has kind of been forgotten and swept under the rug, which is the post-Matrix, you know, martial arts are more popular in Hollywood again. Well, my favorite example of that is The One. It was actually Love it. it was actually called The One. Yep. Just a bald-faced Matrix ripoff with uh, Jet Li. How excited were you? when you saw that trailer of Jet Li moving normally and everything else is in slow motion. (laughs) Oh, man, was I jealous. That is like the early 2000s just distilled into a liquid form. But for people that don't know, Luc Besson, the director of films like La Femme Nikita and the Chris Tucker classic, The Fifth Element. (laughs) (laughs) Do you like The Fifth Element? 
And not really. Chris Tucker is so annoying in that movie. I haven't seen it in a really long time. I hope Peter Kaplowski writes me a really angry letter because he loves Chris Tucker in that film. And I know that you're a Chris Tucker fan with films like Rush Hour and stuff like I that. I mean, I'm more of a Jackie Chan <laughs> fan. I like uh, Chris Tucker by association. <laughs> and so Luc Besson has always been a big proponent of like action cinema from China. Mm-hmm. So he brought that influence by uh, producing films like Kiss of the Dragon, which features Jet Li trolling around uh, Paris and getting into kung fu fights choreographed by Corey Yun. Was Luc Besson involved in Romeo Must Die or was that a Joel Silver joint? That was a Joel Silver joint. That's why Anthony Anderson is in it. Yeah, and that's a weird kind of like, how are we going to adapt the Jet Li persona in America? Well, let's put him with rappers. Yeah. Uh, Also, the love story between him and Aaliyah in that. I I remember there not being a lot of sparks. (laughs) No, but you know, they uh, refine the um, product with such classics as Cradle to the Grave. Yeah, the uh, Tom Arnold, Anthony Anderson series, and of course, you know, Exit Wounds. Oh, yeah, let's not forget uh, Steven Seagal being given that wire work touch. <laughs> well, we talked about that in our Steven Seagal yeah, episode, yeah, didn't yeah. we? But so Kiss of the Dragon also led me to District 13, which is the film that popularized parkour. I'm surprised I didn't see District 13 when it came out, and I think it just must have been that it was French and not Hong Kong, so I wasn't interested. Hey, have, did you see it? Like You haven't seen it haven't at all? I haven't seen it at all. Oh, man, it's so much fun. I'll, I will watch it. I think I would enjoy it, yeah. But it's interesting where you look at the Luc Besson-produced action film that he kind of took the uh, Asian elements out of it until it turned into Jason Statham. Uh, yeah. inspired Hong Kong action films and then finally evolving into the old man action pictures that Everything were Taken. Everything changed with Taken. Yeah. That that was one that was just supposed to be your standard Luc Besson, like $30 million at the box office, like January programmer. And it was a huge hit. Like yeah. it took the world by storm. I remember Taken came out in France and it was delayed for like a year before it came out in North America. I mean, we also have Taken to credit for the uh, Jean Collette Sarah emergence of recent years. That's right. We also have it to thank for the Oliver Megaton have you ever heard of this director? I've heard the name because, of course, when you hear a name like that, how can you forget it? But what has he done? He is the shittiest strain of the Luc Besson like, action factory. He made Transporter 3. He made oh, yeah. Taken uh, 2 and 3. He made Columbiana. Like, oh, like yeah. he must be the most charming man on the planet. But when you see, like, oh, action films are bad now. Look how many cuts there are in this. It's usually from an Oliver Megaton film. Okay, I didn't see any of the Taken sequels. I saw the first Taken and... And enjoyed it at the time, despite its racism. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but the Luc Besson factory still gave us some real solid filmmakers. Like, who can forget Louis Leterrier? Well, I mean, I love Unleashed. <laughs> and the Brothers Grimsby. Oh, yeah. Hilarious. <laughs> but Unleashed. Now, that almost feels like a real movie that has kung fu sequences. Unleashed is just baffling because you go into it just thinking it's going to be this kind of like down and dirty action movie. But it's the most sentimental action film of maybe the 21st century. Uh, It's got, you know, Jet Li, Bob Hoskins and Morgan Freeman all acting their hearts out. Yeah. Hoskins, especially as the villain. I think it's just incredible. (laughs) Oscar worthy performance. (laughs) Yeah. Jet Li, you know, really stretching himself. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. It doesn't Morgan Freeman play like the blind piano player yeah that's right the Jet Li befriends and uh, Freeman gives him his humanity back yeah you know talking about all this Jet Li stuff Jet Li kind of disappeared from American screens in a way that Jackie Chan did not. Well, that's because Jet Li has health problems. He now. does, yes. Yeah. But what I wanted to bring up is, did you ever have any fights with people where they're like, I'm a Jet Li man or I'm a Jackie Chan man? I actually don't think I did because... No? Well, first of all, I love both of them. Yes. I mean, how, how can you not love Jet Li and Jackie Chan? Uh, you know, when The Forbidden Kingdom came out, I was, of course, very excited. Were you there it. opening day with, like, ticket in hand? I was at a press screening. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. That's not how you see. You gotta see with the fans. I know. Well, 
who's gonna who are the fans who are gonna be at opening day? I like Forbidden Kingdom. It's it's fine. Yeah, you know? it's it's good. If it had come around fifteen years earlier, I think then, it would be much better. Yeah, but it's definitely I would might go so far as say Jackie Chan's best American film. Hmm. Wow. Well, it feels like a real movie compared to a lot of Jackie Chan films. Yeah, like Rush Hour or stuff like that. And it definitely feels influenced by like he plays a drunken master variation mm-hmm, in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I mean, you know, I, I I think, um, you know, Jackie Chan is the more lovable screen presence, but I think Jet Li perhaps has the stronger body of work. Yeah. And he's also the more formidable screen fighter. When you yes. think of like straight ahead martial artists, you think of Jet Li because he was actually a wushu champion before he became a martial artist. And Jackie Chan's style is very much this kind of like dog's breakfast of, you know, whatever looks photogenic. Mm-hmm. I saw this week a little movie called Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. And I was like... Like, why did you go see that? I like, did. I did. Why know. did you go see Power Rangers? We could have talked about that. Well, I think it's because earlier in the day... I did you see it by yourself or did you see it ironically with someone else? Uh, the latter. <laughs> okay. But, okay, here's the thing. It was Tuesday. Yeah. So, you know, Cheat $7. Day. And I also, Beating the Beast has made like $350 million. So you need to be in that cultural... I don't always feel the need to be with the zeitgeist, but there's something about Beauty and the Beast that I think is, <laughs> you know, symbolic of just what's happening in the culture. The fact that it's part of this, like, Disney universe of all they're doing is just rehashing their the animated films the same songs same design basically the same characters but now it's live action it's like Malibu Stacy with her new hat <laughs> and people are going to see it I never had any feeling that I needed to go see this movie like it never came across me I was like I need to see this I never felt I needed to see it but I was curious like what are people responding to in this what what does it look like what to... are people responding to they're responding to the things they responded to as kids just recreated on screen and, and that's so weird like I think that I think it's sad that that this is really popular, you know, just a rehashed idea from what they were, what they loved as a kid. Yeah, well, like I even more so than, you know, we, we complain about like franchise reboots or sequels or things being rehashed, but this, but this is, is a, like a literal recreation of all the same yeah, elements. Exactly. And that's, I think that's profoundly depressing that that's really popular. I, you know, me and Will, when it comes to Hollywood blockbusters, rarely agree uh, but on this one, I do agree with you because it is so kind of artistically bankrupt yeah. to do something like that. Like, And it's also not as good as the cartoon because like, so, look look at the cartoon. Look at the characters in the cartoon. Look at the, the candle or the clock in the cartoon and then look at these CGI photorealistic ones. They're less expressive now. They're less fun to look at. And why would you in this time... You're able to make a practical beast. You can do it. Why are you giving us this shitty CGI yak man with dead eyes? And you know, it was fun too. So I go see it, you know, because I didn't see it. Oh, listen, I haven't seen it, so maybe it's great. But, you know, I'm just basing myself on the commercials. <laughs> well, I, I, did you like the cartoon? Well, this is the same movie. So, except they gave the beast a backstory now. And longer, right? Yeah. So, it's so again, not as good. Yeah. Cartoon tells it quicker. Bam, bam, bam. Uh, but I got to see it, of course, in the smallest theater at the Scotiabank because it was the 2D. And what they do at the Scotiabank Theater now is if it's a 2.35 to 1 scope movie, they just put it on the 1.85 screen anyway. With Do they? And you get bleed they, on top and no, bottom? No, they, there are black bars on top and bottom, like letterboxing, and they, they don't bother to mask it. So I'm looking at it thinking, well, what the fuck? This just looks like... Like someone threw a Blu-ray on yeah, well, and like didn't even like make it look nice. This is great. I get to watch Netflix in public now <laughs> with that kind of affectless digital cinematography. Thanks, Tarantino. Yeah, well, he's right. <laughs> I feel bad though for the director bill condon who's found himself in this weird glut like he's he cashing made, a check who cares he, but like he made the breaking dawn like the end of the twilight films yeah he um and this is a guy who started making Candyman 2 
Yeah, yeah. I, I guess he had a brief period where he had the potential to be kind of like an art house guy. There was Gods and Monsters. There was Kinsey. I really like Kinsey and Gods and Monsters. Yeah, they're fine. But I mean, I guess there's there's no, um, you know, he's not he's not a visionary or anything. And yeah, he's cashing a check. And like, so is everybody else. Like, they're doing a new version of Aladdin, a new version of The Lion King. Like, where will this end? Tim Burton is doing Dumbo. <laughs> Good God. Like, <laughs> like, what nightmare have we woken up from? Tim Burton just needs to, like, jump off a bridge and end, end this. <laughs> like, does Tim Burton look at himself in the mirror and go, like, why am I even doing this anymore? I get tired of seeing these interviews with Tim Burton where he's still talking up this game of, like, well, you know, I'm kind of this, like, outsider artist guy, and I, I connected to the material because it's about an outsider like me. It's like, dude, you're, you're, you might as well be Spielberg. You are one of the most successful directors there's ever been like shut the fuck up but comb your hair he's obviously like not trying to reach anything new at this point like you fucking making remaking frankenweenie i think it's depressing yeah 